Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Catherine Cece's, and this is Nashville. Sugar We're Going Down by Fallout Boy. I'm so excited to talk about the details of this episode, masterfully produced by Michaela Elias. Personally, profiles are my jam. One-on-one, in-depth personal conversations. This episode is the exact opposite of that. And it's amazing. In this one, a song sets the stage. Then we get a waterfall of perspectives from Nashvillians out at a party. Khalil starts the conversation with the music journalist, Ryan Burleson, asking, what is emo music? Parenthetical, I enjoyed learning where the term came from. I also appreciated Ryan's take that, quote, all music is emotional if it's trying. Later on, Khalil seamlessly introduces Piper Payne, a mastering engineer who talks about early production techniques for digital music, something I knew nothing about and sparked me to listen to recorded music more closely. Did you catch all of that? Nashville Voices, Basics from a Respected Source, Insider Information from an Expert, genuine conversation between people who love the same thing, more songs, and it's fun to listen to. This is Nashville is a special show. The whole team puts a lot of care into choosing the topics we explore and share with you. As producers, we research those topics thoroughly, find interesting guests, script thoughtful questions, choose the best audio to include, and come up with the overall plan for each episode. Michaela set a high bar with this segment because there really is so much going on, but it's still easy to sit back, listen, learn, and enjoy the ride. Let's jump back in at the end of the clip from the party. Not every emo kid is just eyeliner and like swooped hair. I know that's the stereotype, but like some people have a deeper reasoning for why they love this music. That was Miley, Shelby, Brady, and Spencer Thomas Nickel out at a recent emo night. Now let's turn, let's learn more about emo music. What are its influences? And how did the genre of misfits and outsiders grow to touch millions of people? My first guest is here to break it down. Ryan Burleson is a music journalist. Burleson, pardon me, is a music journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times and Pitchfork. He's also a member of the emo-influenced hardcore band Embraced, and he joins us now. Ryan, thanks for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Hey, thanks for having me. Got to ask you, back in the day, did you have the swooped bangs? You know, I had a, a tiny swoop, but I think they the, the swoops grew to be quite a bit more um, dramatic okay. as the as the scene expanded. Yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> as, as it does, right? Yeah. Now, at the top of the show, I, I, I said that emo is influenced by pop, hardcore, and punk music. Is that description correct? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, emo is a three-letter word and a four-letter word, right? Like, everyone has a different opinion of where it comes from. Um, I, I think most people agree that it sort of starts in the middle 80s uh, and then a very fertile Washington, D.C. scene around Discord Records, uh, a band called Rites of Spring, a band called Embrace, which we didn't know about in Embrace when we started that. That's a whole separate thing. Mm. Um, but uh, basically uh, sort of evolving from hardcore, which was sort of fast and punishing and uncompromising and frankly, pretty misogynistic and violent um, to a, a, a place where artists wanted to look more inward. The, the political became personal. Um, and with that, the sound becomes more dynamic. Um, it becomes more melodic. Uh, there's just more room for experimentation. And yeah, so from there, um, you know, you kind of, it's it's tracking alongside indie rock. So REM, The Smiths, mm. uh, The Cure, these are all sort of, bleed, they start to bleed in, right? You have um, everything that's going on in Seattle with, with grunge and Nirvana. And um, I think, so it starts to sort of build up from that DC time period to um, the 90s when there's just all these inputs just right before the internet where a lot of bands are sort of classified as emo, I guess, but really are drawing from all over the place. And then I think as you see as it, as it explodes into the mainstream that um, surely pop punk has an influence, um, even a band like Queen. I mean, if you listen to sort of what's going on beneath uh, My Chemical Romance's sort of big sweeping cathartic music, uh, there's there's classic rock in there, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's worth sort of saying on top of that that uh, 
very few bands want to be called emo bands, right? Like, wow. uh, it's it's just it's a word that has a connotation because of a lot of the 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 voices we just heard from at emo night, right? Like, it's not just eyeliner, right? Like, for a time, it became just a meme. Um, it became a, a flattened way to say uh, this is what emo is, and 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 it's just not. It's an it's an imprecise word that to me, um, gestures at a very broad sensibility and a lot of different types of music. At the root of it, it's these more confessional sure. and personal lyrics and expressions from artists. How was that so different at the time? Yeah, uh, I think it kind of gets back to that question of what was going on in the hardcore scene and and um, a scene that just wasn't very friendly to women or queer people. Um, it, was a, it was just a a, a place to fight on a Saturday night, frankly. And, um, and so, uh, but there were really smart people within that scene. And frankly, it was like a time period that's point to, it's called the revolution summer, basically where, uh, women <laughs> kind of in DC decided, Hey, we, we have a place here too. Right. Um, like, and so they started starting bands or at least be getting on the same stages with men. Um, and, uh, yeah, but the word, Emo comes from, obviously, the word uh, emotional. It was referring to a style of hardcore that had sort of softened, and, and it was be called it was called emo core. Mm. And those early bands immediately were like, "Please don't call us that. Like that's just not because all music is emotional if it's trying." Right. Yeah. So that's that's kind of like what I mean when you press on the word a little bit, it goes into a million different directions. It kind of feels yeah. like that that claim of emo, you know, is synonymous with teenage angst yes you know yeah yeah it's a crazy criticism when i say a sensibility it's like yes we're talking about something that is confessional cathartic but then you get into those sort of layers of like is it performed catharsis is mm. it real <laughs> like mm -hmm. you know because when it becomes a pop phenomenon i think people realize they can cash in on on that but that's uh maybe for other guests to get into. Yeah, well, my next <laughs> yeah. guest knows all about the emo yeah. sound and how to get it just right. Piper Payne is a mastering engineer and the owner of the vinyl pressing company, Physical Music Products. Piper, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so tell me about your introduction into emo music. Who was the band that got you on board? Ooh, um, well, of course, I grew up in the in the Fall Out Boy, Sum 41, um, you know, the the Blink-182, the Anne Berlin, Coheed and Cambria. Those are my really my favorite bands. You know, basically, um, if I could go to the 89X uh, birthday bash or I could see them on Warp Tour, I was probably pretty into it um, okay. as a teenager. Um, those are some of the bands that I, I really loved. But I would I'd have to say, you know, it'd be between Fall Out Boy and Coheed. So how did you hear them? Did you rely on the radio, MTV? What was it? Uh, MTV for sure. Um, I remember when music was on television. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I am. I, even though I'm a mastering engineer and I rely on you know on um, musicians to be paid properly for their music, I will have to admit that I was a product at the time of the piracy of of music and um, and uh, definitely on you know LimeWire and Napster and downloading music. But it was a way that it was accessible at the time and a way that I was able to learn and find out about all kinds of different music that wasn't necessarily playing on the the top 40 radio at the time. Um, college rock um, stations were also playing a lot of um, that type of music as well. So that's why I discovered a lot of that. Well, you know, did it inspire your love? Did, did your love for this music, did it inspire you to want to become a part of the industry? It did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was originally, um, you know, er early on I was a drummer and I had, you know, some, some cover bands early on where I was really into this stuff. But I, there, was a, there was a distinct memory of uh, finding Fallout Boys, Sugar, We're Going Down, which you heard at the top of this yeah. mm -hmm. show, um, and trying to recreate it in Finale, which is a music composition software. And it's, you know, if I ever found the file again, I would totally cringe and just, you know, want to crawl in a <laughs> hole. But, I mean, doesn't really emo music make you want to do those things anyway? So yeah. it's perfect. <laughs> nice. Now, we got a tweet at This Is Nashville from Nick Lindman. It says, quote, the greatest emo band of all time. Sunny Day Real Estate are playing here in Nashville on October 20th. Well, Nick has gone ahead and opened the proverbial can of worms here, so I got to <laughs> ask, who is the greatest emo band of all time? Whoa. <laughs> oh, gosh. He's, I think he's close, for yeah. sure. I have tickets to that show, too. I, I, and I think it is worth pointing out they are, they are certainly an, an iconic, uh, influential emo act.
What's sure. what's so special about Sunny Day Real Estate? I mean, I love the name. Yeah, so they were in Seattle and they come right alongside the the grunge boom, and uh, they're doing big cathartic guitar work, but they're breaking it down into these really sort of pretty, just beautiful. Uh, songs that, you know, Jeremy Enoch, the singer, is singing in falsetto. Like, you're not hearing that from, you know, a lot of the sort of contemporaries uh, at the time. And so, yeah, that's an important band uh, for me. I'm going to say American Football. American Football. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, kind of the, the yeah, uh, they were really important in the 90s and have come around to be a huge influence on bands who are kind of getting into it now. Okay. Yeah. Piper? I I got it. Uh, it's, it's definitely a toss-up between follow-up by Cohayden Cambria for me. Okay. But okay. those can be argued. Okay. It's barbershop <laughs> talk, right? It's, yeah. uh, who's the best of all time? I, I get into that with hip-hop all the time. <laughs> now, you know, Piper, I understand that you had a little bit of a difficult time choosing a favorite emo song for today, but there's one that made the short list. It's Jimmy Eat, Eat World's classic, The Middle. Let's take a listen. It's great. What is it about that song that you enjoy so much? For me, it's it's the production. And of course, Jim Adkins is just an amazing, iconic figure in, in music in general, but also um, he's just a really nice dude. Um, but I think that uh, for me, it's the, the double-tracked, triple-tracked guitars, the muted guitars, um, the editing of this type of music. Um, as a mastering engineer, I, you know, I pay attention to those items because those are things that I need to make sure translate into the later playback systems and the, the general translation of the music. And so the details that go into the production of um, this type of music, emo, pop punk, um, just general anthemic guitar music, um, that that's kind of the thing that I love the most about this type of music. It's, you know, it's, it's edited drums that are super tight, but really full. It's the idea of having a production, a bunch of production techniques that are coming up in the early 2000s in digital recording, um, even though, um, you know, a lot of stuff was tracked on tape, but might have been edited and mixed down in the digital domain mm -hmm. um, that gives uh, the listener the ability to make this like or the the listener the ability to hear the song in a more inflated hyper realistic um, way that the producer and the mixing engineer can impart into the song but the coolest thing about that band Jimmy Eat World is that every time I see them live um, they sound just like their album Wow and that's one of my favorite things about you know being an engineer and really digging into the multi-tracks of these types of songs and then hearing them play them live um, on tour just it, there's nothing like it that's pretty rare to see any in any genre of music uh, an act a performer a band sound exactly like their album it goes to speak to their musicianship absolutely mm -hmm. and the songwriting the time the, the time spent arranged in, in the arrangement mm -hmm. the songwriting of course the performance these are musicians that are all at the absolute top of their game and even though you might want to poke fun at the you know the silliness or the the um the lack of depth in sometimes the the, the um, lyrics they they might be a little bit silly um, but just the time that these musicians spend honing their craft and being able to impart that to their audience and sound exactly like their albums I mean I think that's pretty cool yeah that is now now Ryan you're a part mm -hmm. of the emo influenced band embraced mm -hmm. the band you you were signed to Nashville's Theory 8 Records who we'll hear a little bit more about later in the show but let's hear a bit of your song Hold my hand.
That's pretty fresh, man. That's well 2002. 2002. <laughs> That's 21 years ago. Well done. Well, what was it like all those years ago to be signed to Theory 8? Yeah, uh, an honor. I mean, we were. I grew up in Panama City, Florida, uh, which is known for crazy spring breaks, and that's about it. Um, hmm. uh, it's very beautiful, but it, it doesn't have like a. It's not a stop for you know bands to play, or at least wasn't at that point. Certainly not punk rock, not hardcore, that sort of thing. So we were kind of on our own little island uh, in in Panama City, playing around the region. And, uh, and yeah, to, to have um, Aaron Hartley, who will be on the show next, uh, find us and, and reach out to us and help us scratch together a budget to make a record was incredible. And it ended up uh, changing my life, honestly, getting to, getting to travel on that, the one record we made, um, you know, just opened my mind in so many different ways. As a 21-year-old leaving, I took off semesters from Belmont to go tour, mm-hmm. you know, going all the way out to California and all these places. And... Um, and then by the time I was I was sort of ready to not be on the road and and pursue writing, um, I think I had a, a benchmark that maybe someone a lot of kids that age wouldn't have for um, uh, starting to think about music critically mm-hmm. and journalistically. So. Now you're you're at Belmont as you mentioned mm-hmm. here in Nashville, which is a country music town. Sure, not the only music in town, but definitely country music is here. Are there parallels between country? And emo music. I think so, uh, and it didn't really hit me until I went and saw Paramore at the Grand Ole Opry a couple months ago, and and Haley came out after several songs and with an acoustic guitar and played. I want to say a Loretta Lynn song. Um, it was she played a few songs, and I started to think about how honestly, um, it's it's four chords. It's four chords with like a it's pop music it's mm. it's uh it's a different kind of wine and twang maybe <laughs> uh-huh. as country music you know um it's an authentic hard on your sleeve type of thing that that sometimes is very raw and sometimes is cheeky and smart and you know there are double entendres and things like that um so yeah i think there's an an absolute crossover between the purer strains of both of those genres, for sure. One just maybe a little bit louder. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Ryan Burleson is a music journalist and a member of the band Embraced. Ryan, thanks for being here with us and today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And Piper Payne will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll look at how this episode moved from emo in general to Nashville's emo roots and really made the guests the stars. Stay tuned. And this is Nashville. Welcome back to Producer Takeover Week. I'm sharing about one of my favorite episodes, Sugar, We're Listening to Emo. In the second segment, what we call the B segment, we learn about how the emo music scene started here in Nashville from people who were there. Even with three guests, the conversation flows easily and feels open because the questions naturally build on each other and there's room for each guest to share their personal stories. We really get to know them. Let's drop back in. My next guest was a part of that first wave of emo in Music City. Aaron Hartley is the founder of Theory 8 record label and former owner of the venue IndieNet. Aaron, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. You know, it's really great to learn about all this. (laughs) And, you know, I got to think, owning a record label is no easy task. No. What inspired you to start Theory 8 Records? Well, I grew up, uh, when I was in high school, as a sort of, um, you know, I graduated from high school in 1996. So I'm sort of a, you know, a product of grunge, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in a very small Uh, Well, I grew up in Alabama, and we didn't have a lot of access to independent music, basically. Everything was either radio or MTV. So when Nirvana kind of blew open the doors in terms of sort of grunge and alternative music, you would basically, in those days, buy the CD, and then what I would do is just go through the credits and figure out all the bands they would think. That's what bands did in those days, you know? Uh, And then I would just look up those bands, so you're finding out about Mud Honey or Eddie Vedder uh, is wearing a Fugazi shirt on stage. And then I just, that stumbled into sub pop records, discord records, merge records. And then uh, a little bit later on, I sort of got into some more of the 
Christian labels. So we think tooth and nail uh, and those type labels. And I just got obsessed with it. And I thought, I just want to be in music. I want, I don't play music, but I want to be in the business. And so I thought, I'm just going to start a record label. And uh, that's what I did. Was it a one-person operation? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, anybody that was in a band had to work, too. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, but yeah, it was mostly me just running things out of out of my house. How so. did you find bands? You were obviously your own A&R. Yep. How did you go out and find bands to sign? The very first band I found was on a website called, like, mp3.com. Okay. And I would just... I remember that. Yeah, so. right, right. <laughs> and so I would just surf uh, the internet, and I found a band. I wanted to work with a band in Nashville, because I... After high school, I went to Belmont and I, gra I graduated with their music business program with the intent of starting a record label. And so I just would look for bands in town that I could work with. And so there was a band called The Goodbye Letter, and I started working with them. And in typical uh, indie fashion, they broke up like two months after the album came out. Okay. Uh, but um, And then I would just keep looking around. And so I was on mp3.com. I just started finding bands and other, other websites I can't quite recall. But you know, I found those guys. I found a, a band called Copeland at the time were called Ev Angel, and I reached out to them and uh, embraced, as we were talking about earlier with Ryan, there was just an, uh, a way to access. Bands were uploading stuff. This would even predate MySpace, I think. They would upload it, and you'd just be able to reach out to them. They wouldn't have much of a team and, and say, hey, like we should make a record. So It's one thing to have a label, you know, enable bands to release records. Sure. It's another thing for bands to find a place to play. Sure. You also started IndieNet. Yes. A venue. How yeah. did that come about? Well, I'll clarify that a little bit. I sort of took over IndieNet after um, it had changed hands. IndieNet originally started as Lucy's Record Shop, which was run by uh, Mary Mancini, who I would you know, give a ton of credit to the independent scene, really having a home here in Nashville. And she had a record store, and basically in the back of that, there was a big enough space to have bands play. And when she uh, decided to no longer run Lucy's, it became IndieNet, and a friend of mine, PJ Kinzer, was booking shows there. So this corresponded at the same time I was releasing albums. So the way I would market my bands is mm -hmm. I would ask another band that was bigger to come to town, and I'd say, I'll pay you 200 bucks, you know, whatever they needed to come play. And then I would just say, my band's going to open for you. And then that way I would get people that didn't know about my band to come see the headliner, and my band would open, those sort of things. So I was basically becoming a show promoter in order to expose people to my bands. PJ moved along to a new venue that opened up called The Muse, and I sort of stumbled into running IndieNet for pretty much the last year, year and a half of it, its existence. But basically, all that to say, it was just a great all-ages venue where bands could come play, because at the time, we really only had the end, maybe slow bar, but most of those were age-restricted, mm -hmm. and so kids didn't have a place to go. So it was always a $5 door. We split the door evenly with the bands, and we had some great bands come through, and uh, it was just a, uh, an early place for uh, bands to come play in Nashville. Now, mastering engineer and vinyl press operator Piper Payne is still with us. Thanks again. Thank you. For being here. Nick, did you go to a lot of emo shows when you were younger? You mentioned some of the big time events. Did you go to smaller ones? Yeah. Um, there were, you know, there, I grew up just outside of Detroit and there was a great scene for alternative music and emo. Um, you know, yeah, some of the biggest bands um, touring at the time would come through some of the larger venues like St. Andrews Hall in Detroit. But yeah, there were, I also went to school. Um, I did my undergrad in audio engineering and music production at, in Ann Arbor. And um, there's a really wonderful scene of underground clubs and stuff mm -hmm. out there. Now, you know, the essence of the scene is this do-it-yourself approach. Yeah. You know, you get the music out by any means necessary. But back then, the popular methods were CDs, vinyl, and cassette tapes. Yeah. You know, although, you know, as you said, sites like Napster were growing in popularity. But take me to the process of your work. You know, like working and mastering a project for vinyl and how that is different than the final format being on a digital platform. Yeah. Modern music today is very difficult to put on this older format um, called vinyl. Um, same with with cassettes, and I know you like cassettes. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a you know there are modern production techniques that we use to make records um, in in the digital um, domain. But uh, the cool thing about emo music and this type of um, you know alternative, mostly guitar driven uh, music is that it actually goes onto vinyl a little bit easier than some other stuff like 
um, a lot, you know, some some hip hop stuff, some glitch glitch core dumpstep stuff is very difficult to put on. Well, because on a on a recorded disc, we only have so much space and so much time to put on the disc itself. Um, so I always like to say you can pick two of the following three. You can have the length of the album be very long, or you can have a lot of bass and um, and low end in space, or you can have a lot of very high fidelity, and you can only pick two of those thing three things to go onto a vinyl record. And mm. the neat thing about um, emo and pop punk music is that everything is so well sculpted and so well arranged that um, it it actually goes onto vinyl very well. Okay. Now, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the origins of the emo scene here in Music City with Piper Payne and Aaron Hartley. You can share your comments with us at This Is Nashville. Now, my next guest is a vocalist, drummer, and songwriter for the band Under Oath, Aaron Gillespie. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hello. Thank you for having me. Now, you st- let me let me ask this. You started Under Oath when you were 16, right? I, I, yes, but I, there's sort of a there's, there's a storied path to that. You know, it, it, it was a local band at that point. You know, so this is I'm actually on tour now, and this is our 20th year on the road. Congrats. So I was 16, but it was it was very. Thank you. It was very local bandy. So, I, you know, I don't think you could call it like public until about 2003, maybe 2002. It all becomes very convoluted in my head as I talk about the timeline, but somewhere around there, you're correct. Yes. That's, so when did the band first play Nashville? I had a conversation yesterday with someone trying to figure it out. There used to be a place that's now a Domino's Pizza. And I think it was called the Muse, M-U-S-E, but I can't, I can't be certain. But that's my earliest memory of playing in Nashville. It was a, it's now a, a Domino's Pizza up against the interstate. Um, but at the time, it was this small, very DIY venue, and I can't remember. But that must have been 2002, 2003, I think. So what was that, um, what was that environment wish- like for you? Like the first time you're in the Muse, right? Yeah, yeah that would have been the Muse. The yeah. Muse, yeah. and now it's a Domino's it Pizza. What was it yeah. like when you yeah. performed there that first time, Aaron? I mean, I had nothing to pit it up against, you know. Back back in those days, but you know, before this became as corporate as it is now, and you know, I never had any visions of grandeur that that this would be my living, or that it would be public. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it was very. Like it was church basements. It was really, you know, we grew up in in Tampa, Florida, playing at a place called the Refuge, which was also a homeless shelter, a shelter for the homeless. Um, and they would they would flip this room at night and turn it into a venue. So it was VFW halls. It was church basements. So the Muse felt like a real venue. You know what I mean? It felt like a place that bands actually played, and it had this kind of provenance because you were in in Nashville. You know what I mean? And I, my mom's from Chattanooga, and I listened to pretty much solely country music growing up as a child. So, in my opinion, I like I you know we've <laughs> we've kind of made it. Like we did it. Yeah. You know, like this is it. We're playing. We're playing at this place in Nashville that isn't like it's not. It doesn't double as anything else. It is just a music venue. Mm-hmm. You know. So for us, it was very like. You know, we thought that was it. You know, this that was as far as you could get. There was no. Back in those days, there was no idea that we would, it would grow. You know what I mean? Like this genre of music, like I didn't, I didn't know it could be public. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it was just like, you know. Yeah, no. it, it makes sense. And, and you're out here actually living the dream. Now, Aaron Hartley, let me ask you, have, have you, did you see Under, un, Under Earth play during those times? Yeah, actually, I think you guys also played IndyNet because I'm pretty sure you stayed at my house after the show, or at least half of the band did, which is what would happen in uh, those days. You so know? I definitely, we definitely stayed at your house, I remember, but I couldn't remember <laughs> if it was IndyNet or the Muse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's what it was like back in the day. I mean, Aaron can speak to this probably, you know, but, uh, you know, you'd split the, a $5 door and you'd have X amount of kids show up. So you're paying the band 200 300 bucks maybe. They couldn't afford to stay in hotels, and so they would often just right. crash at people's houses after the shows. I mean, it was very much a community thing. It was very much bands asking people at the show if they could stay at their place. Mm-hmm. You know, at the merch table, like, 
But there was a good group of people in town that were very much a part of this scene. There were great promoters in town that knew these bands personally, and they would bring them to town. And I feel like the bands felt like they were going to be taken care of once they got here. And so they knew we just need to get there, play the show, and then we'll be all right, you know, and then we can make it on to the next one. But Nashville, Aaron could probably speak to this. Nashville's a tough town to play in the early days. I mean, I would book shows at IndyNet. I booked, uh, it was tough. Yeah, I had a band yeah. called The Kills, which is very, you know, great. I had five people show up. Nobody knew who they were. And the next right. time they came to Nashville, they played the Ryman. You know, Mastodon's first show was at IndyNet. Mm -hmm. We probably had 50 people there, you know. So it, it took, it, it, that, those days it was a hard, it was very hard to get people out to shows in Nashville, except for when you had a band like Under Oath that would come through town and they would have a good community of people. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and that's when people would come out and support. So. Well, from humble beginnings to Big time venues and a lot of attention yeah. these days. The scene has definitely changed. Piper, real quick, I've got about 35 seconds. How do you, what do you want for the future of the emo scene here in town? Oh, I, I would love to see the, the continuation of the collaboration and um, gen, general communication, everybody shouting each other's bands out and helping each other out. I mean, the even when you ask somebody, who should I work with for mastering or production or even vinyl pressing, like what we do, um, everyone loves to shout out the folks that are helping each other um, and because this is such a collaborative and supportive town. Um, so what I'd love to see is even more emo music come through Nashville. Piper Payne is the owner of Physical Music Products, and Aaron Hartley is the owner of the Theory 8 record label. I will thank you both for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks, thank you. When we come back, I'll share how the final segment shows why our host Khalil is so good at what he does. Side note, this transition skips the usual break music to sneak in some more emo tunes, this time under oaths reinventing your exit. We'll be right back. I'm Catherine Cece's, and this is Nashville. Welcome back to Producer Takeover Week. Thanks for joining me while I share about one of my favorite episodes. In this last segment, we switch from the history of emo music in Nashville to the future here with the next generation of emo musicians. Khalil welcomes two new guests. If you're keeping track, that makes six guests for the episode, a full house. We also get three new music clips and a tweet. It's all fun and seamless. A huge reason is Khalil. Khalil is involved in the development process of each episode, but once that on-air light comes on, he truly leads the way. Besides being genuine, as you all know, he is very good at pacing conversations as a host, following what comes up naturally, and then bringing the conversation back to topics we hope to cover. It takes a lot of skill and makes a great live show. So sit back and enjoy as Khalil takes it away. Jack Omez is a member of the band Jack the Underdog, and Julia Bullock is the lead singer for the Foxies. Jack, Julia, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Mm -hmm. So excited. A lot of fun, a lot of fun. So I w I'd like to briefly hear who your musical inspirations are. Julia, you know, what was the emo band that really connected with you? Oh, man, for me, I remember it was Armor for Sleep when I was when I was like 15 and then it was you know panic at the disco and fallout boy uh, but armor for sleep really allowed me to get my aggression out okay <laughs> in a safe in a safe way <laughs> nice nice jack who are your emo heroes so my first concert ever was actually the fray which is more of like an indie pop band <laughs> less emo but um after that i really found uh, paramore became obsessed with paramore mm -hmm. um that was my favorite band for like a year and then some 41 yellow card and then really just anything warped to her nice nice well julio how tell me how did the foxies come together and get started yeah yeah so um a friend of mine nick from a rocket to the moon at the time he's now in beach weather um, he put me in touch with these songwriters in Phoenix, Arizona, and I decided to move there from New York and created this album 
Um, but it was under Julia Lauren at the time. Uh, we also had a name called Body Talk, so I'm glad that that did not stick because I, that's the, a... I like the Foxies a lot better. <laughs> I do, too. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, don't use that name. <laughs> so, so um, but then once it became kind of like a fleshed out band, I got the opportunity to play uh, The End in Nashville. And I got some friends to play for me. And then I found who are the Foxies now. I found those guys um, within the year of being in Nashville in like 2016. So did you set out to do emo music or did that kind of develop? I think it's just more so a thing like when I started my first band at 13, that's all I was listening to. And, And it's like kind of ingrained in you, you know, like you can make whatever type of music. But if you're feeling that emotional, you've got that emo vein in you. It's just kind of, you know, it's undeniable. It's going to come out. <laughs> okay, the Foxies just released their first, your first full-length album mm-hmm. last year. Let's listen to what the future holds for emo music. This is Good Try. Take your Sounds to me like emo is in good hands. Oh, I'm now, sweating. That made me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> what was writing and recording this project like for you? Oh, wow. It was crazy because, like, you know, it was one of those things where, like, we didn't know we were writing an album. We were just creating music because we love it. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, we're at that point in our career where it's like, let's just do it. We've got enough songs. Why don't we just freaking write an album or put one together? Um, And it's this very emotional self-discovery album of the journeys of my brain and how I deal with relationships with myself and people. Mm -hmm. Um, And writing it with the boys was the best way to do it. Yeah, it sounds Mm -hmm. really awesome. Thank you. Now, now Jack, tell me about the name Jack the Underdog. Does that have a special meaning to it? So it does. I, um, I also went to Belmont University here in Nashville, moved down here about eight years ago. Um, and I was in bands in high school, a lot of emo, pop punk, rock stuff. Um, and when I got to Belmont, I started making music under the name Underdog. Um, and I was releasing, you know, a whole bunch of different music, kind of more in like that, um, that pop emo R&B vibe, like kind of what Black Bear and Mod Sun were doing for a while. Um, and I very quickly realized that no one could find my music because there are a million other underdogs. Um, and so I, I really liked the idea of that name and just uh, being a queer artist here in Nashville. I wanted to be able to encapsulate that within my artist name as well. So Jack the Underdog to me is kind of just a uh, an identity to kind of tell people like, if you're an underdog, you're welcome here. You're a part of the community. Uh, we're kind of all in this together. You talked about community. Is collaboration important to you? It's so important to me. Um, I am currently a member of the Riot House, um, which is a really amazing group, a collective of 10 different artists. We come together once a week and we just make mashups, original music, uh, just like come hang out and just do podcasts, really anything. Um, and I also am currently in the process of kind of re-releasing old songs of mine with new collaborations on them, kind of giving them new variants, um, breathing some new life into them. So collaborations are one of my favorite things within music. And speaking about breathing new life into songs, you just re-released your song, Scared of You, to feature the artist Glimmers and Sun Baby. Sun Baby. Yes. Let's take a listen. That's got a vibe to it. I really love that. Well, you know, tell me a little bit more about why collaboration is so important to you, Jack. 
So I've always thought with, with art and music, really just anything within this industry, um, we can all do something cool, but we really can make something cooler if we're coming together and collaborating because I can make something on my own and I'm the only one that can do it exactly that way. Not saying it's the best, right? But I can do something by myself or I can bring people in and create something that I would never have been able to do by myself. Um, and just because of the people in that room, we were able to get something cool out of it. Nice. Um, I just, I think it also just really brings together um, relationships within the industry, which I'm also really big about, you know, supporting people I care about um, and get kind of getting the same in, in uh, return. Just, yeah, all of that. Mm -hmm. Now, Aaron Gillespie from the band Under Oath is still with us. Aaron, thank you again for being here with us. And, uh, you know, a lot has changed since Under Oath first came out on the scene. And you heard, you heard one of your older songs at the end of the last segment. Now we're going to check yeah. out something that you all have been crafting these days. Here's Under Oath's most recent single, Lifeline, Drowning. That's really cool, man. Tell me this, what what message are you conveying with that song? You know, I think that, you know, in listening to all these conversations in the last hour, we're talking a lot about the genre and and, and sort of where it, you know, it's, it's ethos and where it came from. And I think that, you know, if you really zoom out, if you get macro about emo music, it's all about a feeling, right? And I think that at its origin, at its core, the best style of this music is when it's honest. Do you know what I mean? So mm. this song is just an honest thing. You know, sometimes you get overwhelmed. Sometimes you get so much piled on top of you, you can't get ahead. You can't get forward, you know? And I think that for me, what, what I gravitated towards this music for at a young age, I turned 40 last week and I was, I was thinking about this conversation today and it's such an honor to do, but I was thinking, you know, as a kid, what really got me into this was I felt like it was helping me. You know what I mean? I felt like it was it was pulling me through something. So I always try to put myself in the shoes of of honesty and and, and try to meet the listener where they're at. Mm -hmm. You know, because I know that that's what got me through high school and that's what got me through my twenties and you know all those things. So just a place of honesty. You know, I think that we always try to come from there. And in this particular track, it's just. It's the story of everybody, you know, sometimes you're overwhelmed, whether it's by the, the state that the world's in today or or whether it's from things in your personal life, you know, like when you're overwhelmed, you feel alone and you feel isolated. And I think this is kind of a call to that. And that's where people connect to, you know, I mean, we have a tweet. Sure. We have a tweet in it. This is Nashville from Kid Pastel, who says, quote, bands like The Main and Panic are still considered emo by many, even though they haven't made that style in years. Is it a bubble that traps bands at all? Do you think they'd want to escape that? You know, Aaron, what are your thoughts? Uh, you, uh, I think people, you know, I think I think some would say that, you know, and if, if I, I, you know, I've been on the whole conversation, right? So I've been kind of a fly on the wall um, and I've known Burleson for 25 years. So, you know, like if you ask me uh, when I was 18, you know, when we started, we were starting to tour with this band with Under Oath, we, we consider it emo. I would have said no to you. You know, emo to us was like American football, like Burleson was talking about, and Sunny Day Real Estate, and uh, a band called Mineral. And so we were we were on this next wave of things that then became labeled emo. And I think a, a big part of that was because of the look and because of the feel of the songs. And uh, But for me, if if people are finding an emotional place in your music and they want to call it that, I'm kind of like, who cares? You know, that's sort of the way that I feel like, call it what you want. You know what I mean? Like, would you, the, you know, Metallica calls themselves a metal band, but there's metal bands that are like really, really, really aggressive, right? Mm -hmm. And Metallica doesn't drop the the moniker of a metal band. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, or like with hip hop, like Jurassic Five is hip hop to me, 
but Megan the Stallion is also hip hop somehow too, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's just it's different it's different iterations of the thing, and I think that you have to just you know if you're going to get miffed about what someone's calling it, I think that there's we got bigger fish to fry in 2023 than you know as artists than being kind of miffed about what genre someone calls us, and, you know, and, and labels that other people put on you. Now, Julia, is emo something that you all embrace at the with the Foxies? I mean, I think it's just more so the fact of like it's kind of undeniable of just like who we are as who we were as kids, you know, and and growing up in the music industry and and entering in the music world. It's that's what we loved. We loved listening to emo music. We went to Warp Tour. We we went to all those shows and. I don't think we strive to be emo. I think it's just something that like, you know, if 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 that's who you are, it's who you are. And it'll come out through what you do and and what you create. Um, and going back to your question of like feeling the trapping of like, do these bands want to be called that anymore or something like that? It's more so just like, you know, make make music that you like and what, whatever people call it, they call it, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. so, people are going to have their opinions. They're going to yeah. say their comments. Yeah. It should not affect your creative process. No, not at all. Be like Bowie, you know, Bowie. Like he he had so many different different vibes and, and different personas. And like just because he always just wanted to constantly create something that he was proud of. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know. If you want to make emo, make emo. If you want to do emo country, do emo country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Jack, I'm interested, you know, with your collaborative partners from the Riot House, do you all talk about this a little bit, like the labels of things, or you just eschew all that and make the music? So a little bit of both. We definitely talk about it, but we kind of just say at the end of the day that we don't care. We're just going to do what we want to. Um, we label our group as alternative artists. We originally labeled us all as pop punk artists and emo artists, but now we have people that are doing dark pop, people that are doing hyper pop. Um, we have really just all different versions of alternative music within the Riot House. So we've just kind of coined alternative and we let people call it whatever, whatever they want to call it. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, labels like genres are kind of um not that the genre is over conversation but j labels like uh for genres are a little bit outdated because of the way that all genres are kind of coming together and mixing uh, mm -hmm. we see pop punk and emo coming together with hip-hop and hyper pop and and rap and all of that kind of stuff so um yeah we just we kind of embrace it where i'm not sure if i'm supposed to announce this but i will right house is actually playing uh emo night brooklyn bowl uh in september so we're going to be doing an emo night uh here in nashville so all definitely right. embracing the emo side of it it's coming up you know and it feels like to hear all of your comments it feels like you're embracing the pop root the punk roots of it where you're like forget everybody's comments we're gonna go out here and make some music and you know there's more people coming here we only have really like a minute and a half left but i'd, I'd really love to hear what your future hopes for emo are in town julia i just i just want people to feel like it's it's a safe space that's a big one um it's a beautiful community it's a safe space and more importantly like create what you want to create do it with love. Know that you're loved, and that's the biggest thing. Um, and, you know, people can't deny that. Aaron, what do you want to see for the future of emo in Nashville? I just want people to say yes. You know what I mean? Like, like I hear a lot of comments, I, you know, growing up making this music and now being a writer in town, I hear a lot of people say things like, oh, you know, that's not how it was. That's not how we did it before. And I just want to hear people kind of, throw off those boundaries and say, this is what it is now. And this is who we are now. And, and, and that's, this is what we're going to make, you know, we're just that permission that you can only get from yourself, you know, that I, you can go forward and you can make whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Now, now Jack, do you see the community of emo musicians and fans growing in the future? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to say, I, uh, within the, within the community here, we, we have a show for, you know, some artists will say John Harvey or 408 or someone that's, you know, either touring or, or living here and playing and the whole community gets together. Uh, you see different photographers and different musicians and it's just really great that all these events, people are coming together to kind of do this together. Thanks to you all for being with us and thank you for the music. Thank you. Hey, it's Catherine checking back here at the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode and like me, truly appreciate how Michaela, Khalil and the guests made it all happen. I'm also inspired to think about different ways from this episode to have fun and craft multi-guest, multi-audio clip shows. I'm looking forward to bringing more of those to you in the future. Thanks for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's re-air episode was produced and directed by me, Catherine Zeses. 
The original was produced by Michaela Elias. Liv Lombardi is our fearless and chill technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Daniel Pujol, Reagan McKay, and Shane Greenberg. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcast. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Really, we see an answer. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey. This is Nashville. I'm Catherine Zizis. We'll see you tomorrow when producer Elizabeth Burton takes the mic. Until then, I hope we can all find some good together. Funding for This is Nashville comes from you, our listeners. And Nissan, who for the last 40 years has been proud to call Middle Tennessee home. More information on the work Nissan is doing to support the community is available at NissanUSA.com. And Wang Vision Institute, the first center in the state to perform Forever Young surgery to reduce the need for reading glasses. Learn more at WangVisionInstitute.com. This is 90.3 WPLN, Nashville Public Radio, 91.5 WTML Tullahoma, and 91.7 WHRS Cookville. Nashville Public Radio's new daily newsletter, The Nash Villager, is our human-powered daily guide to Nashville. Supplement your daily listening with easy-to-read updates. Subscribe at nashvillager.org. Funding for Here and Now comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Robin Young. And I'm Scott Tong. This is Here and Now. Coming up, whether former President Trump can be removed from the ballot is a complicated legal question. Colorado Republican suing to do just that sees it differently. He tried to overthrow an election. It's very simple. Also, we'll have more on yesterday's Tokyo runway collision and how the commercial jet staff got all their passengers off alive in 90 seconds. And on what would have been a birthday, we remember Chinese-American actor Anna Mae Wong, who struggled to find success in the early 20th century. Despite her beauty, talent, and tenacity, she had her career kind of hampered and thwarted by racism in Hollywood and in the country at the time. Coming up here and now. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. There's been no claim of responsibility for explosions in Iran today that killed some 100 people.